us immigrants, uh, Jews from the former Soviet Union, mushroom foraging is also a way of connecting or staying in touch with the aspects of our past that really bring only positive, fine memories. It's become such a passion that anywhere I go, I pretty much look. For mushrooms. We were at a family wedding in Maine, and sure enough, I had an hour to wander around, and I came back with a whole bag of mushrooms. Hi, and welcome to The Big Schmear, the podcast celebrating Jewish food, culture, and history. And I'm the host, Beth Schenker. Fall is definitely in the air, and that always makes me think about those fall foods, new season That's always fun. And then also thinking about activities that make this time of year kind of special. And so in that light, I've invited Dr. Maxime Schreier as my guest today. He's going to talk about the Jewish immigrant experience of foraging for mushrooms. Let me tell you a little bit about Maxime. He is a bilingual author, scholar, and translator, and professor of Russian, English, and Jewish studies at Boston College. He's also the director of the Project on Russian and Eurasian Jewelry at Harvard's Davis Center. We'll talk more about his work as an author in the podcast, but right now we're going to focus on fall and mushrooms, another area of interest for my guest. Hi, Maxime, and welcome to The Big Schmear. Hello, Beth, and thanks so much for having me on your podcast. I'm excited to talk about mushrooms and... um, In all my reading, you seem to be the perfect person to have this conversation with. And I know that you live on the East Coast. And uh, even though there's lots of places in the country to forage for mushrooms, I thought it might make sense for us to focus on the area where you live. And I'm wondering, what are some of your favorite places to look for mushrooms? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I'm a fanatical mushroom forager. This is part of my roots back in uh, Russia. I grew up in Moscow. My father grew up in St. Petersburg. So I have roots in both capitals, but also going farther back to the former Pale Settlement, particularly to Ukraine and Lithuania. But it's become such a passion that anywhere I go, I pretty much look for mushrooms. We were at a family wedding in Maine, and sure enough, I had an hour to wander around, and I came back with a whole bag of mushrooms. Uh, So that (laughs) said, as you correctly pointed out, uh, my family and I live uh, in Brookline, which is basically in Boston, and I've lived in New England for over 32 years and in Boston for almost 25. So it's really my home. And most of the foraging I do happens to be not just in Massachusetts, but on Cape Cod, which uh, I think most of your listeners know is a kind of a narrow peninsula that's jutting out east of Boston. And it's a very special place with a different ecosystem. And uh, we have a place there right on the elbow of the Cape in a town called Chatham. And I do regular foraging there and also in other parts of uh, the Cape. So tell me, and this would be the perfect example of you, you saying that you had some time in Maine when you were at a wedding and you decided to look What makes an area a worthwhile place to look? What are telltale signs besides actually seeing mushrooms? What would attract you to an area to say, I think I'm going to go forage right now? (laughs) 
You know, it's it's a great question. In a sense, it's also the kind of question that people who are passionate uh, anglers uh, are asked a lot. And I don't think it's a question that one can answer to satisfaction because part of it is a hunch and part of it is an instinct and part of it is uh, accumulated uh, knowledge. Uh, and I, I often get asked to go mushroom foraging and I welcome people, but I also hesitate to teach about it because Part of the challenge is you have to know your mushroom. That's the most important thing, because if you don't know your mushrooms, uh, the area will not help you. That said, <laughs> I like to forage in areas that most closely resemble the kind of European, specifically Central and Northern European ecosystems that I am most familiar with, because I had spent formative years in Russia and the former Soviet Union. So in Russia and also in the Baltics, we used to vacation every summer in Estonia on the West Coast. And that's your typical landscape of pine trees, sort of not particularly fertile soils, coniferous forests, sometimes mixed forests, and also mossy, mossy ground with a little bit of grass, patches of sun, perhaps little hills or hummocks, and a certain proximity to the sea. All of that combined usually produces good mushrooms uh, between the months of uh, July and October. So we're we're actually at the very edge of that prime season right yeah, now. Yeah, in fact, you know, I'm trying I'm trying to figure out if I couldn't go one more time next <laughs> week. Sometimes if the weather is still warm and if it's rainy around here, you can still get very good mushrooms, particularly aspen bolides, which are very choice uh, mushrooms. You can still get them into early November. So before we get into the actual mushrooms, which I'm pretty excited to talk to you about, <laughs> tell me what kind of tools do you, I'm guessing you might have these in your car all the time, um, or at least at this time of year, but what tools do you need to go forage? Well, here's the thing. It again depends uh, how involved you want to be. There is a kind of Gentle, it's like gentle yoga, I suppose. Gentle light foraging where you just walk a path and you look for what is growing on the edges of a path in the woods. And certain mushrooms certainly like to do that because they like a little bit of sun. That does not really require a whole lot. I usually like to have a woven basket because it preserves the mushrooms well. You don't want mushrooms in a plastic bag and a little pen knife because you don't want to rip them out. At least according to the school that I belong to, it destroys the pores, the roots. So you cut them at the stem. And then if you start getting into deeper woods, it certainly is good to have some sort of walking stick to poke around in the leaves or in the moss. Uh, and of course, I mean, these days, re mosquito repellent is a must because of all the craze with the new mosquito-borne illnesses. But the point is, I am in favor of light equipment because I think you will walk farther and uh, you will also have a more holistic experience. It sounds really wonderful. Now what I want to do is 
fly to Brookline and go on a mushroom forage with you. Seth, you I will take. I don't <laughs> take this anybody. Because part of it, of course, as you can imagine, you give away your secret spot. Ah, right. And every forager has his or her secret spot. And I feel like what happened after that long essay of mine ran in tablet, I think I've been getting random calls or emails from people who just want to be told where to forage. Oh my gosh. uh, I think one feels slightly put upon, but it's a good thing. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about some of your favorite mushrooms and why they're your favorites, what they look like, what's the texture. Just give me some ideas of that. Absolutely. Well, again, here, um, different foragers uh, will tell you different things. It also depends on where they grew up. I think it depends perhaps of their cultural or ethnic background and also their culinary preferences. Because I grew up with standard European mushrooms uh, and particularly uh, with kind of mushrooms that you find between the Uralian uh, mountains and going westward all the way into Central Europe and then southward to the foothills of the Alps and the Dolomites. I tend to look for the same species here, and I'll, I'll get into some specifics in a little while. I just want to point out there's one problem, of course. The same species of mushrooms growing in different soils, in different forests, taste differently, and may or may not have the same safety quality. Oh, interesting. Uh, so, again, really this is both an art and a science. You need to learn about the mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, as an anecdote, a good friend uh, at the Cape who is a retired sheriff, a wonderful gentleman, a war hero, really a stellar person. And he knows about my passion for mushrooms. So every once in a while, he brings all these piles of mushrooms for me and says, here, I got you all these mushrooms. <laughs> and every single one of them is bad. Ooh. Because they look very picturesque and they look like they have, you know, nice promising texture. But these are not mushrooms I ever pick. So now, to get down to the specific, in the top, top category of mushrooms that I look for are various bolites, uh, B-O-L-E-T-E, bolite. And uh, those are, for the most part, choice edible mushrooms. Uh, the best of them and the most famous is what uh, the Italians call porcini mm. and the Russians called bielia gribui. And sometimes in English it's called a white pine bolete or a king bolete. This is probably the most delectable of the bolets. All the bolets have a firm stem. They have a cap that is colorful, either brown or red, or kind of speckled or bright yellow, brownish, ochre colored. And then the bottom is spongy. So if you can imagine, how can I describe it? Taking a sponge, cutting out a round of sponge and gluing it to sort of a round wooden top, you will have what looks like the cap of the mushroom. So the spongy quality is part of that delectable texture that if you've had porcini, you probably uh, would appreciate right away. <laughs> it sounds great, actually. Right. And basically, there it's sort of a hierarchy. The king is the porcini, the king bolit, and then 
sort of the slightly sort of that's the king, and then there are dukes and princes, and then knights uh, going all down to the regular mushrooms. That's how I would describe it. On the Cape, the choicest mushroom that uh, one uh, aspires to forage is what's called the aspen bolit or the Russians know it as Podashinovik because it likes to grow around aspen trees. It's uh, a very beautiful mushroom with a bright red cap, and it's, when it's young, it's very robust, and then when it spreads out, it develops a long stem and a large, large cap. Those are wonderful, also have a very, very delicious aroma. So uh, this makes me think about a couple of things. One is, wow, I've never seen mushrooms that are, as you describe them, so colorful and so different than the ones we see in the grocery store. And well, because you mostly see regular white mushrooms, yep. uh, oyster mushrooms, and then now every in, in some stores you you do see porcini and chanterelles, which are you you must have seen chanterelles, yes, right? Yes. There. Yeah. yeah, those are fabulous. Unfortunately, I don't see them much where I forage. And what I don't understand, and, and this is sort of, I don't expect you to know the answer to this either. It's just a thought. It's like with this plethora of edible mushrooms in the world, why we don't see more of those available in the store? I, I know we see them at, um, or I've seen them at farmer's markets. But right. that's it. It's, it's, it's an interesting question. And I'm not sure I have, all the explanations, I'm sure there are some market-driven reasons, but my sense is that, uh, and also the mushroom market in the West, uh, on the West Coast and also in the, uh, in the mountain states is different because they're native American mushrooms, delectable mushrooms that people forage for there. I don't know them. I'm not proficient in them. But as far as the traditional uh, uh, mushrooms of the sort that I've described, various bolites, for instance, uh, I think it's a question of safety because there are also sort of uh, false cognates, mushrooms that look virtually like the best mushrooms and are poisonous or uh, can give you very, I mean, some are deadly, but the poisonous can give you very bad food poisoning. And I think probably the vendors hesitate. Mm. And I would hesitate as well. Yeah. Which also brings me to another question, which you've touched on just now, but also um, in a, a few minutes ago. And that is that if somebody were to want to start doing this, foraging for mushrooms, and were a novice, clearly you shouldn't just walk out on your own and pick mushrooms and then eat them. Um, Absolutely not. And you really must apprentice with a guide. And it's not just about reading. There are very nice reading, there are very nice guides you can buy with photographs, but there is a lot more to that because appearances are deceptive. And also, like I said, you need to know where to forage. Right. Uh, I can give you an example. If you drive, if you cross say, the Sagamore Bridge, which connects to the mainland to Cape Cod or the Bourne Bridge. You get on a little highway that takes you all across the Cape, and you pass some very lovely groves with pine trees growing on sort of little dunes, and there are always mushrooms there. But that's not a good place to forage because it's right by the roadside. So you, you can imagine all the pollution is going into that soil mm. and sits there. 
So basically, these mushrooms look fabulous, but I wouldn't recommend foraging them. These exact mushrooms that, say, half a mile into the woods would be perfect. Right, right. And so are there places for a novice to go to find a master or um, find other people? <laughs> I, honestly, this is where my limits uh, are particularly apparent as a mushroom forager. That is to say, I was taught like a peasant, uh, <laughs> and I still live like a peasant. In other words, I rely on my experience, and I don't really know what the systematic knowledge there is out there. So in other words, I take my kids. My younger daughter is a lot more into foraging than my older daughter, but sort of I have taught them to identify mushrooms. And, of course, I learned it from my parents and also from uh, some older folks that I encountered uh, when I was growing up in Russia. Are there any kind of clubs that you, do you think that are out there or do you not know? I'm sure there are. And like I said, again, it's the same as, you know, literary workshops. There are plenty of those, but it does not mean that every writer is involved in them. I guess that would be an imperfect analogy. (laughs) For me, this is more of a solitary experience or a family experience. Uh, And so I kind of like it this way. Uh, Funny, I have a very close friend who still lives in St. Petersburg. Her name is Katya. And this goes back two generations because her mother grew up knowing my father when they were young people. And uh, so there's a long standing bond. And so Katya is part Jewish, part Slavic. And she had two Jewish grandfathers and two non-Jewish grandmothers. And one grandmother was of peasant background and grew up in a village in central Russia and was a treasure trove of knowledge about nature, about mushrooms, berries. And so my friend Katya is an amazing mushroom forager. So with her, I would go any day because part of it is also a certain intimate connection that goes back generations. It's a kind of uh, deep knowledge uh, of who you are and who, you know, you used to be growing up. Mm-hmm. That makes it, I don't know, that just makes it a really lovely, intimate kind of uh, yeah, but activity. What I'm saying is, which is why I think in the United States, and I have never done that kind of systematic research about it, but my sense is it hasn't quite taken as a popular activity as leisure, in part because obviously the immigrants came here with their traditions, but there was no native tradition or not the kind of tradition going back centuries uh, of mushroom foraging. In other words, every peasant in a village would go mushroom foraging. It was absolutely, absolutely standard uh, as a source of food and sustenance, but also as a collective experience. But not here. Right. So I wonder if you could tell me how you bridge those two worlds in terms of this kind of activity. So you had that experience with your parents and other family in Russia and then moved here as a child because you've brought it forward, obviously, and you're teaching your daughter. So how how did that happen? How did you make that happen? I think this is uh, mushroom foraging is among those... uh, particularly blessed activities that, for me, have transcended boundaries of religion, culture, and history. We left for 
reasons that had very little to do with culture. We uh, we had been Jewish refuseniks for many years, uh, and for us, the decision to leave was mainly based on uh, anti-Semitism, discrimination, and also uh, the Soviet Union having been a totalitarian regime. Certainly, that means that we brought with us a certain baggage of memory, which includes the things that we choose to hold on to. And this is one of those things that we absolutely choose to hold on to, because it's not marked by prejudice. It's not marked by politics. Mm -hmm. It really transcends those things. I, I hope you understand the point I'm making. In other words, here to us immigrants, uh, Jews from the former Soviet Union, mushroom foraging is also a way of connecting or staying in touch with the aspects of our past that really bring only positive, fine memories. Yeah, that makes total sense. And and it's lovely that there are some of those things that do exactly what you say, because you don't want to lose all your childhood memories. But also, in a sense, this is not an intellectual activity. It's not a strictly speaking, sort of fine cultural activity. It's not like listening to Russian music or reading the Russian classics. It is, in a sense, a very universalized European, Russian, Slavic activity, but also one that Jews in Eastern Europe embrace after centuries of living there. So I want to do two things. I want to talk just a little bit more about mushrooms and food and Jews, and then kind of maybe switch over to talking a little bit more about the Jewish immigrant experience. And so so you have this basket of mushrooms, all these amazing mushrooms. And so what do you do with them? Do you just eat them raw? Do you have special things that you do with them? Uh, Tell me a little bit about that. Never raw, because I don't forage for white button mushrooms or field mushrooms or what is called champignon in French, which if young can be eaten raw. All the mushrooms that I forage for require uh, some form of preparation of treatment. So we do several things. And of late, I have mostly been pickling the mushrooms Mm. because I also, my wife always says that I have this uh, peasant appreciation of living off the land, which is true. I like to forage my foods and then I want to eat them and serve them. So I pickle them in jars and then uh, basically I keep them all winter and then it's a wonderful appetizer. That's one. Two, you cook uh, various mushroom infused sauces for pasta, for instance, or to serve over meat or chicken. That's wonderful. And three, soup. I mean, particularly Uh some of the choicest bolites, uh, they make the most delectable mushroom soup. In other words, Beth, if you can imagine a delicious soup cooked from regular supermarket mushrooms, this is 20 times more delectable. Ah, yeah. Oh, and this is the time of year when people are really thinking about making soups. Yeah, but basically, no matter what, you have to know how to prepare them and uh, I, yeah, you can also you can also pan fry them with onions. That's delicious as well. But my rule, and different people feel differently about it. I blanch all mushrooms for five minutes, and then I pour out that water, and then I cook them. In other words, the idea being is if there is a chance of 
some sort of toxin, the blanching for five minutes usually takes care of it. But like I said, <laughs> this is a personal preference. Sure, sure. So you touched on um, this experience and thinking from a Russian immigrant kind of perspective. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about foraging for mushrooms isn't just an activity that Ashkenazi Jews did. It was of the region, and you didn't have to be Jewish to do this. Um, No, of course. In fact, as you know, Beth, there is a deep tradition of skepticism in Judaism, uh, going back millennia, uh, skepticism toward mushrooms. Some of it has roots in Leviticus, as do a lot of these things, but also in some commentaries. Uh, skepticism has primarily to do with the fact, it's funny, I was just talking to my younger daughter who was studying this mushrooms in school, and I said, well, of course, because think about it, they're neither animals nor plants. So it's a little bit hard to think of them in categories. Uh, and because of that, I think the ancient Jewish sages were concerned, right, for reasons of identification and for reasons of dietary purity. Plus, also, you have to know your mushrooms, and therein lies danger if you don't know them. And so because of that, I think my tentative argument is that uh, after moving into Poland from uh, German lands and then spreading across uh, Slavdom, particularly Western and Eastern Slavdom, into the former Pale, into the Baltics, the Jews began to learn mushroom foraging from their non-Jewish neighbors, particularly those Jews who were living close to the land or on the land. And that's why it slowly enters uh, the Jewish mainstream and the Jewish cuisine. And then once, uh, in the case of the former uh, Russian Empire, once the restrictions fall after the revolutions, and once Jews move more and more into the Soviet mainstream, in a sense, mushroom gathering becomes a kind of every man's, every woman's Soviet leisure, every woman's, every man's Soviet activity. And uh, it's sort of, it's not marked in any specific way. Uh, so in other words, Jews forage not as Jews, but they forage right. as Russians, as Soviets, etc. And so when when we come here, uh, riding the wave of the great Jewish uh, exodus from the from Soviet Union, of course, we bring with us uh, these uh, habits, which are no longer habits, which are part, I think, of our cultural habitat. So this is the perfect segue to talk about your new book called A Russian Immigrant, Three Novellas. So I wonder if you could, this is a new release, I think it just came out in September, is that correct? A few weeks ago, yeah. Ah, so Mazel Tov on Thank that. Thank you. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about the book, and, um, and are there any connections? Or do you talk much about Jews as this immigrant experience, or do you... Tell me just a little bit about it. Any food? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. So, A Russian Immigrant, Three Novellas, is a new book of fiction, and it is primarily concerned with the lives of Jewish immigrants from the former Soviet Union and their lives in America, a little bit in Canada, but mostly in America, but of course with connections to other parts of the new Jewish-Russian diaspora, Israel, Germany. And it offers 
fictional lenses through which I examine the extent to which the Russian Jews have assimilated, acculturated after the American fashion, but also how we still are quite uh, Russian and Jewish both together. It's three interconnected novellas because they share the same main character, whose name is Simon Vesnikov, who lives in Boston, and he is not autobiographical, although, <laughs> like his creator, he came to this country as a young man and has really made a life for himself here. And also, I suppose, unlike his creator, he's restless. Uh, I used to be quite restless. I think I'm a lot less restless now. Simon is still restless, which basically pushes him to travel and to encounter different parts of his past. From that, I generate various dramatic collisions and tensions. Uh, I am trying to remember, and I am not sure. I think there are no mushrooms in the book. Uh, <laughs> uh, there is a lot of fishing, because that's another big evocation of mine, but maybe mentioned, uh, because there is a certain nostalgic section where the main character comes in contact with uh, an old flame of his, a Russian woman who actually married a Jewish man, emigrated, the marriage fell apart, and they get together and reminisce, and they reminisce about a certain very, very happy time in their lives when they were young students, and I think much foraging does come up in that context. But basically, what I'm trying to figure out is, as a fictionist here, this paradox of a Jewish-Russian community that it's, on the one hand, very socially mobile and successful, right? I mean, think of uh, the boy from Moscow who invented Google, right? Doesn't get a whole lot more successful. But on the other hand, that Jews from Russia and the former Soviet Union, I think, still hold on to their roots and culture in a way that's sort of preventing them from fully assimilating and acculturating uh, like many more immigrants. And so this sort of thing really interests me because it's a source of many fictional tensions, many fictional conflicts. So that's uh, more or less what the book is about. It's about American success and failure. It's uh, also about death, about jealousy, and it's uh, about an inability to uh, root oneself in America as an immigrant. So to some degree, it is not just a Russian immigrant story. It's an immigrant story. Right. It's, there's a lot of general themes there that people yeah. can connect with. I am very happy that the book is out, and I, uh, I have some uh, readings coming up and have had some in uh, different venues here. And what I particularly enjoy is the sense that readers who have nothing to do with Russia or Jewishness uh, connect with the book precisely through the immigrant bridges, because I think it touches on some chords that resonate with many, many Americans of different backgrounds. Oh, absolutely. And it, it's what people are talking about now on many levels of status of immigrants. And so it's, it sounds like it touches and on There's some... a lot of food in the book. <laughs> well, good. For sure. I'm, not, I'm yeah. not disappointed. And if people want to find you or this book, what are the best ways for them to do that? Best ways for them to do that, other than giving me a call and asking to be taken mushroom foraging, <laughs> which uh, may or may not work, is they could visit my website, 
www.schreier, S-H-R-A-Y-E-R.com. And that has information about my books uh, and my life. And you can even see a picture of my new dog, who is a miniature poodle. <laughs> and the book is uh, yeah, Where Good Books Are Sold and Should Be Easy to Find. Thank you for asking. Sure. And Maxime, thank you so much for being my guest today. It was really just a joy talking with you. And, and now, of course, I have to go out and buy some mushrooms because... What else can you do after you have this conversation? So Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, Beth. Yes. Really good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to The Big Schmear. Our recording and mix engineer is Steve Robinson. The Big Schmear theme music is performed by Cavatino Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. If you like The Big Schmear, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. If you have comments or questions, I'd love to hear from you please send your email to me at Beth, B-E-T-H, at thebigschmear.com. Be sure to check out my website, thebigschmear.com, to find recipes shared by my guests. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. Thank you for listening, and happy eating. <laughs>